Hello, you're listening to episode three of Russia Unwrapped with me, Francis Scar, a British journalist based in Moscow. For this episode, I spoke to Polina Ivanova, an architect, activist and author from Yekaterinburg in Russia's Ural Mountains. A few years ago, while still a student, Polina became passionate about the architectural legacy of her own city, and in particular, a style from the 1920s and early 1930s known as constructivism. At the start of our conversation, I asked her to tell me about the movement. Конструктивизм это архитектурный стиль, и также его называют архитектура советского авангарда. Constructivism is an architectural style. Sometimes it's also called the architecture of the Soviet avant-garde. It's a style that arose after the revolution, as part of the cultural revolution that was also declared. The new leadership decided to change culture entirely across the whole country, all at once. There are also some things that we would now view positively, like the increase in literacy, equality, and so on. And there were some things which we would view negatively. They brushed aside the country's whole historical record and said they would create their own new culture. And the architectural style that developed within that is very functional and very rational. Constructivism did not develop in isolation in Russia, though. This was also the time of Bauhaus in Germany and rationalism in Italy, to name just a couple of other modernist styles. But the cultural revolution unleashed by Russia's new Bolshevik leadership gave the country's constructivist pioneers arguably more of a licence to design and build than their counterparts elsewhere had. What's more, in the Soviet Union, such ideas of minimalism and rationalism became a dominating force across all aspects of life, not just design, architecture and city planning. But this period of relative artistic freedom would be short-lived. As Stalin saw off his political rivals one by one to consolidate his position as undisputed leader, the Cultural Revolution was wound down and replaced by a more conservative approach. In architecture, this meant the rise of what became known as Soviet or Stalinist classicism, a style whereby Soviet symbolism and motifs were incorporated into classical style. The most notable examples of this are the skyscrapers of Moscow sometimes known as the Seven Sisters, among them the Ministry of Foreign Affairs building, Moscow State University and the Hotel Ukraina. For Yekaterinburg, constructivism has great significance because in the Russian Empire, Yekaterinburg was a small county town while the regional capital was the city of Perm. After the revolution, though, Perm lost its capital status, while Yekaterinburg became the capital of the whole Urals region and was renamed as Sverdlovsk. And so actually, we are not talking about Yekaterinburg constructivism, but rather Sverdlovsk constructivism. This Sverdlovsk became the capital, and it was rebuilt to match its new status. Lots of open spaces and squares were remodeled to fit the new architectural style. It was no longer a pre-revolutionary merchant's town, but a new avant-garde city of the bright new Soviet future. Разбудили город революционные бури 20 века. 
В первых рядах уральских пролетариев шли большевики. Екатеринбург становится крупным революционным центром борьбы с самодержавием. The architects of this time were merciless with Ekaterinburg, the small pre-revolutionary city that lay before them. But this transformation into Soviet Sverdlovsk arguably represents a zenith for the city. Over the next few decades, its population grew fivefold and its first universities were founded. Tram lines were laid, and for the first time, people welcomed running water and electricity into their homes. The new city was truly unrecognisable. But Polina's passion for the architecture of this period goes much further than niche academic interest. She believes that constructivism holds the key to Yekaterinburg's successful promotion as a proud 21st century city with its own unique identity. Я открою небольшой секретик. Дело в том, что у Екатеринбурга просто нет другого шанса. Let me tell you a little secret. In my view, Екатеринбург doesn't have any other opportunity for selling itself in a really distinctive way. The thing is, Екатеринбург is quite a young city. It was founded in 1723. There is no medieval Russian architecture here. There are hardly any buildings left from the 18th century. And if we're talking about classical Russian architecture, that's already been taken by other cities, like St. Petersburg. When it comes to earlier styles of architecture, there are plenty of other cities with more of it, simply because they were more important at the time and had access to more financial resources. Our city does have examples of other interesting styles, such as the architecture of the late 19th century, when the railway arrived and there was a steam-powered boom. Red brick buildings everywhere, steam-powered engines, locomotives, steamboats, steam-powered manufacturing. That's all fascinating. But there's more of it in other cities, because they were regional capitals. But constructivism manifested itself here in a really striking way. Of course, vivid examples of constructivism can be found today all across Russia, not just in Yekaterinburg. But the fact that Yekaterinburg's population mushroomed right then, during the heyday of the avant-garde, meant that constructivism left a truly lasting imprint on the city. In Moscow, and what was at the time Petrograd and later Leningrad, for example, constructivist works of architecture simply became lost among the countless other styles already woven into the urban fabric. But for Sverdlovsk, it was a real moment of triumph. And so I believe that when we tell foreigners, or even just Russians from other cities, why they should visit Yekaterinburg, we can tell them proudly that we have a large collection of avant-garde architecture that they won't find anywhere else. Examples of constructivism are scattered all around the city. But if you hop on a tram in the centre and head north, you'll eventually reach Uralmash. It was once a satellite town purpose-built in the early 1930s to house thousands of workers for a new heavy machinery plant, but is now joined to the city as a result of subsequent urban expansion. Uralmash is an archetypal Sotskorod, or in English, socialist town, built during the first of the Soviet Union's many five-year plans. 
Following the country's temporary new economic policy, or NEP, when certain elements of a market economy were permitted by Lenin in an attempt to kick-start growth after the carnage of the Civil War, Stalin introduced a planned economy. The state assumed full control of revenue and spending, and issued plans determining how much would be manufactured and how much the population would consume over the subsequent five years. Oromash's most iconic work of constructivism is the Bielaya Bashnya, or White Tower, a water tower built as a symbol for the new town. Even today, it remains the neighbourhood's dominant feature, but for years it stood redundant, a concrete hulk on the skyline, slowly gathering heaps of rubbish and becoming more and more consumed by creeping webs of graffiti. As a structure with official status as a cultural heritage monument, the tower remained in state hands even after the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991. However, in 2012, while Polina was still studying architecture, the legal trustees of the tower relinquished their rights to its custody, granting Polina and a group of like-minded friends the opportunity to become trustees themselves. They dubbed themselves the Padilniki, in English, Partners in Crime, set up an organisation and embarked on a mission to save the tower. Since then, the Padilniki have cleared the structure of its mountains of rubbish, given it a fresh lick of whitewash, installed electricity and fitted doors and windows where before there were merely gaping holes. One of the things that was important to us was to be able to extend the tower's life. It's now in a stable condition and is no longer falling into disrepair. It was all quite an interesting situation, though, because when we approached the relevant authorities with our proposals, they didn't believe it could be done within the law. But we explained everything to them and eventually won them over. And luckily, earlier this year, we won a grant from the Getty Foundation for the tower's restoration. And that's what we're engaged in at the moment. Paulina told me that the project involves navigating a whole maze of red tape, but nonetheless, with drive and with passion, they have transformed a concrete ruin into a venue for tours and even cultural events. I wondered how the locals had reacted. We've had a pretty large response to our project. When we were just getting going with it, we realised that Uralmash, like many remote parts of the city, has its own peculiar kind of community. People there had already formed their view of the tower, and it was very important to us that we weren't seen as newcomers from the centre of the city who had just turned up in their neighbourhood to show them how things should be done. Right from the start, we set ourselves a goal of involving locals in our project. We organised volunteering days at the weekend when people could come and help us work. Loads of people came. The Padelniki even reached out on social media to find those behind the graffiti that had plagued the tower for so long. While the occasional tag does still appear, Polina believes this contact has allowed the tower's restoration to progress without becoming a war of attrition between whitewash and spray cans. One thing that really united everyone involved in the project was Polina's decision to hand out keys to the tower to every volunteer. She told me that vandals later cut a large hole in the temporary fence erected to protect the tower while basic restoration work was still ongoing. But despite this, those with keys told her that they considered it a crucial matter of principle to continue using the gate. 
Another key part of the project are the tours of the tower held every Sunday. The Padenliki really value mass participation, and even if they know that only a single person has signed up, the tour still goes ahead. On the whole, though, these tours have become more and more popular. In Yekaterinburg, and in Russia more broadly, we are really seeing some sort of boom of interest in local history. When we study history at school, it's a different history. The history of the Russian state, which for the most part is the history of Moscow and St. Petersburg. We often know about the positions of troops during the wars with Napoleon, but we have no idea what was happening in Yekaterinburg and what the city's history consists of. And that's a really big problem, because people come to value our historical capitals without at all valuing the city they live in themselves. And if people are able to travel, then they visit places like Paris and Rome, and this problem often becomes even worse. We all know about ancient Rome, but not our own city. It's as if our city has no history. Nothing ever happened here, and the city never produced any great historical figures. And the city's worth falls hugely in the eyes of its own people. Paulina is just one of a number of local activists and academics who've helped to inspire this newfound interest in the city's history. But it's true that a short while ago, maybe five or ten years ago, a kind of local history movement began to develop, whereby people learn what happened in their own city, why their city is important, why things are built in the way they are, and which significant figures once lived here. And in actual fact, it turns out that local history is also really interesting and that some really dramatic historical events played out here. Another of Polina's architectural interests is Soviet modernism, a style that emerged under Nikita Khrushchev in the late 1950s and held sway in the country right up until Mikhail Gorbachev's perestroika around 30 years later. This is the subject of her most recent project, a book on the Soviet modernism of Sverdlovsk. In 1955, Khrushchev's government issued a decree condemning the so-called architectural excesses of the Stalin era. The document featured some of the criticism that would target Stalin personally in Khrushchev's secret speech to the 20th Party Congress a year later, a tirade in which the new Soviet leader hit out at his predecessor's cult of personality and the bloody purges of the 1930s. But there were also more prosaic concerns behind this rejection of Soviet classicism's monumentalism and grandeur. The country found itself in the midst of a severe housing and infrastructure crisis, and those at the top decided that a new architectural style, grounded in functionality, held some of the answers to their problems. Soviet modernist buildings lacked the costly decorative elements of Stalin's favoured classicism and could be built much more quickly and inexpensively. This style is what foreigners tend to imagine when they think of cities across Russia, the former USSR or even the wider Eastern Bloc. And more often than not, their impressions are extremely harsh, 
They picture grey, soulless giants, cancerous blots capable of ruining any natural or urban landscape. Polina told me that many Russians also hold such views, but that she believes they are unfair and reflect misconceptions about the period. Nowadays, people often have the impression that nothing happened during that period, and as a result, that the architecture of the period is just grey Soviet boxes, which either need to be demolished or rebuilt. But I think it's really important to put that history in context, because it's impossible that the country had 30 years in which nothing of interest happened. Yes, this architecture is ubiquitous across Russia, Polina told me. But that is part of the problem. The state does not consider it part of the country's architectural heritage. And so no rules exist for its preservation. It enjoys no protection and is subject to the whims of whoever the owner is. Polina told me she had very recently read about plans to reconstruct a building called the House of Culture in Oralmash, the same neighbourhood I mentioned earlier. It's a stunning example of Soviet modernism. A beautiful building with complex interior designs and furniture specially created for it. They're saying gleefully that huge amounts of money have been earmarked for its reconstruction. But I sense that they want to rip it apart and make a wonderful new building out of it without any sense of its existing value. And so I decided to write this book. I believe it's really important to popularize Soviet modernism. Towards the end of our conversation, I asked Polina about something I have anecdotally observed during my time in Russia, which I had previously attributed to the sudden arrival of capitalism in the 1990s, a widespread attraction to the newfangled and a resultant disregard for the intrinsic value of things built or manufactured in the past. She suggested there was definitely an element of truth to this, but ascribed it to something more fundamental than the abrupt switch from a socialist to market economy 30 years ago. She pointed out that in the 20th century alone, Russia had been through several cycles of social and political regeneration, and that these experiences had left their mark. Some sort of gene for full renewal does exist. I also think this is true for the era of perestroika. There is a really actively promoted myth in the country that during the 90s everyone was really poor and we had no money for repairing architecture or building new things, but that in 2001 or thereabouts we were lifted up from our knees and could afford to build again. And for that reason, the Soviet legacy has in some way been discredited. People believe that everything was built to low standards during the Soviet era and that it's all falling apart. And therefore, in the minds of people, it's considered much better to build new things. To be honest, I think it's somehow fixed in the Russian mentality. As a result, she told me, it's really hard to find original architecture in Russia from, say, the 16th century or earlier, because almost everything built back then has since been reconstructed. The vast majority of architecture in Russia that has survived from this era 
is to be found in towns and cities that abruptly lost their political significance. One example is Suzdal, formerly the capital of a great medieval principality, but annexed by its rival Muscovy, today's Moscow, in the 14th century. Nowadays, Suzdal is a quaint riverside town of 10,000 people, frequented by tourists and travellers, not power brokers or tradesmen. In places like Suzdal, reduced political influence meant fewer funds for urban regeneration, and so the architecture maintained its original appearance. Suzdal, сокровищница русской старины, русской культуры. Можно подумать, что разрушительное время обошло стороной творения древних мастеров. Нет, время ничего не щадит. Такими были сооружения, которыми мы любуемся сегодня. This history, if we look at it right through from the 16th century onwards, then very quickly it becomes sad. You realize that individually you can't really do anything about it. But if you view it on a more local basis, then yes, I think we can achieve something. Paulina told me about one particular project that proved the value of efforts by her and other activists. Back in 2018, she sifted through 10 years' worth of local news headlines for mentions of constructivism in Yekaterinburg. She noticed a marked increase in the frequency of mentions over the period. And she also saw that this jump was not matched in the local media of other comparable cities. Most encouragingly, there was also a real shift in sentiment towards the architectural style. If in 2012 or 2013, senior regional officials had said that constructivist buildings were an embarrassment to the city and should be demolished, just a few years later, the very same kinds of people were hailing Yekaterinburg's constructivist heritage as the pride of their city. Это, конечно, небольшая победа, то есть их уже не хотят априори снести, но... Of course, it's a small victory. We have now convinced people that these buildings shouldn't be knocked down. But there need to be further steps surrounding the actual use of these old buildings. We need to educate people about the use of old buildings and not only constructivist ones. That was Paulina Ivanova telling me about the importance of preserving Russia's architectural heritage and the challenges faced in doing so. Join me again next time on Russia Unwrapped as I learn more about this fascinating country from another guest. Mm-hmm.